0: So, uh, before we get started, uh, I need to tell you a a story about my sin. You guys like those stories, right? So, my wife and I are coming back from New York last week, and uh, we were sitting down, you know, we fly JetBlue because we like to watch TV, or at least I like to watch TV while we're flying, and I bought the even more space, because I'm fat, and so... And also with that, you get early access to the overhead bins. So I put my backpack in the overhead bin, and people are coming on, and the plane's getting full, but that's okay because I paid for even more space, and I have access to the overhead bins before everyone else because I'm godly like that. So this lady comes in and opens up the overhead bin. Clearly, my first thought is, well, she's going to see It's pretty full. And then she just takes her suitcase... And just starts ramming it in there. Like pushing and ramming and twisting and like bang, bang, bang. And then she took the door, smash, smash, smash. And it's not closing because it's too full. And I'm looking up and I'm saying, is she smashing my bag? And the guy behind her just start laughing. He, he He says, while she's smashing, he says, oh, she's smashing the bejesus out of it. And then the woman right in front of her says, I hope you don't have any Girl Scout cookies in there. <laughs> and so I said with as little profanity as possible to the woman, what are you doing? <laughs> and so she went and she, she jammed it. She got it to work. She jammed it in there and closed the thing. She sat down and I got up and I opened up the door and I took her suitcase out. Take it easy. <laughs> I, heard all the whole, I took my backpack out, I put it under my seat, and I put hers back in there. And she was sitting two rows behind, and I leaned to the people behind me who were laughing at it the whole time, and I said, What was she doing? And so I sat down after making that scene, and my wife gave me that what I JB look. You've heard of WWJD. What if that were Jesus' backpack? Look, that she gave me. And so I'm sitting there and I'm having this discussion in my head just how mad is my wife and how mad am I? My wife was mad at me and I was mad at the lady. And so it was hard to figure out who's the villain here, right? Is it the lady that jammed my backpack or is it me who made a scene out of it? The lady. <laughs> the lady godly people in this church the lady that's exactly right well that's kind of a good news and bad news scenario right so we're on lesson 26 if you can believe it or not in this life of david we have about four four left we're going to finish up probably the week before easter Um, and then we're going to start a new series after easter and i'm really looking forward to easter sunday by the way we'll have two services that day at nine and eleven Uh, So the the 9 o'clock for the godly people and 11 o'clock for those of you who need Jesus. I just want to make sure that you understand how that works. (laughs) But um, we're going to be finishing up the life of David here in about four weeks, and it's been an incredible journey. And by the way, Megan did a fantastic job last week filling in. She did a great job with that. Now, um, this week we're talking about good news and bad news. Who's the villain? Who's the bad guy? And we're going to discuss this because... There is an undeniable theme in the life of David, and we understand that David is a man after God's own heart, and we also understand that David is a man with a very black heart. And there is a a conflict there, is there not, between David being a man after God's own heart and then a man with a very dark heart, a man that's got a heart so dark that he's capable of and committed murder, murder and adultery. And he has a thousand wives. And there are so many other examples. Not dealing with dysfunction in his own family. Not dealing with the rape of his daughter by his oldest son, the prince, the heir to the throne. Not dealing with the fact that his second oldest son killed his first oldest son in retaliation for that. So basically we have a situation here developing in chapter 26. And I'm not going to read the passage to you because it's so long. But Absalom begins to work out a situation where he is going to take David's place on the throne. And remember I told you there was an overriding theme at the beginning of the life of David, which was David wanted, got, Satan wanted to keep David from ever coming to the throne. So he was attacking David. But then, once David took the throne, the attacks changed, and now the enemy is trying to attack the actual throne and cause the throne to lose credibility, cause the throne to lose its um, purpose caused the throne to lose its ability to be the throne that jesus christ would have claimed to and this is one of those examples so basically let's go through what happens here okay with absalom remember absalom is the one who murdered amnon who, mur- who raped his sister tamar first of all absalom steals the hearts of the men of israel he gets these chariots and these horses and 50 men and everywhere he goes that's his entourage is a chariot With horses and 50 men. Everywhere he goes in Jerusalem, people know he's coming because there's 50 men and a bunch of horses. And he's on a really nice chariot. It had GPS. It had nice wheels. It was sitting on dubs. You know, it was really nice. And so it was a really nice chariot. Everybody's looking at it. And they're thinking, man, this guy is G. Some of you don't know what that means. The younger ones do. And then what else he does is he, he intercepts anyone who wants to bring a lawsuit to the king. And basically the way it was set up back in those days is that whenever there was a matter of law, oftentimes the king was the supreme court. And so people would come. They would come into the Jerusalem, come into the city because they have an issue. They want the king to resolve this legal issue. And Absalom would sit himself in a strategic place to intercept anyone who had an issue or a grievance to bring to the king. Basically what he's doing is he's trying to find dissatisfied people absalom is targeting dissatisfied people in david's kingdom so that he can bring them over to his side through manipulation and here's basically what he would say to them you know your case tell me what's going on why are you here to see the king yeah you know your case is good and your case is right there's too bad there's no deputy to hear your case for the king and to advocate on your behalf So he began not only finding dissatisfied people, but he began to flatter dissatisfied people. It's kind of what sometimes happens in churches today. You know, if I were in charge, I'm not. I'm just Absalom and I've got my 50 men and my chariots and I look good. And the scripture says he was one of the best looking men in all Jerusalem. So he's got it all going on. And basically, he says, you know, if I were in charge, I'd give you justice. You would not be dissatisfied if this were my kingdom. So whenever anyone would come, he'd put his hand on them, he'd kiss them, and he'd say, if only I could help you, because I feel your pain, I know what you're going through. I would take your side every time. Not only does he do that, but he begins to enact this incredibly public worship. He sets up with his 50 men and his chariots and and the horses. He goes and worships publicly. And so everybody sees this guy and he's... He's there strategically to intercept dissatisfied people. He flatters dissatisfied people. He makes promises. He says, if I were in charge, you would not be dissatisfied. And on top of that, he hugs them and he kisses them. And he's a politician. He's a good one. And not only that, but he has this public display of worship. So that's his plan to steal the hearts of the people of Israel. And it works. David, the most effective king in the history of Israel to come and in the past, even though there was only one before him. And the people's hearts begin to turn. And you could probably understand why, right? I mean, it's no secret what's going on in David's family. Bathsheba, Uriah, Tamar, Amnon, Absalom. Everybody looks at this guy and knows that his family is a walking headline for the tabloids. So then, Absalom, after he wins the hearts of the people, he begins plans to overthrow David's kingdom. And he sets off, first of all, he finds the 200 most influential men he can find in the kingdom. And the scripture says he convinces them to follow him. He says, Look, guys, my dad is a mess. Remember what happened with my sister? And you know Amnon, he was ready to give the throne to Amnon. Are you kidding me? You guys know what what a lunatic he was. I had to kill him. Remember what he did with Uriah and Bathsheba? Remember all this stuff? Guys, come on. Look at me. I mean, I got chariots, for goodness sakes. And so he begins this plan to overthrow. He steals away 200 very influential men. And then he also steals a man called Ahithophel, who was David's counselor. And by the way, you know who Ahithophel was? Bathsheba's granddad. See, Absalom is not stupid. He's finding every dissatisfied person he possibly can. And certainly Ahithophel would have a reason to be dissatisfied with David. I'm certain that as he sees this whole dysfunctionality continue to work out, it started with his daughter, and now with Absalom and Amnon and Tamar and all these things, certainly Ahithophel is thinking, man, this guy David is out of control. And the scripture says that he was known, Ahithophel is, as a very wise counselor. He had a lot of wisdom, a lot of discernment. And he was one of David's most trusted counselors. David really liked him. David considered him a friend. But Ahithophel is dissatisfied with David, and he comes along and joins Absalom's camp. And David even describes the feelings that he had when he found out about Ahithophel leaving him. In Psalm 41, he writes, it, and he says, Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who I ate bread with, has lifted his heel up against me. That was in Psalm 41, verse 9. And this guy that's renowned for his wisdom, people respect him, people admire him, him along with 200 of the most influential men in Jerusalem go with David. And then David sees what's happening and and Absalom has all these people. And David hears about it and David says, you know what, I'm in trouble here. It's time for me to go back to where I always go when I'm in trouble, the wilderness, He goes there a lot, doesn't he? Remember when Saul was chasing him all over the place? David's very at home in the wilderness. He's comfortable there. He knows every cave inside and out. He's lived in them for years at a time. In some ways, David is probably more comfortable and more in tune with God in the wilderness than he is in his own palace. What is it about the wilderness and David, what is it about this? And I showed you pictures of the wilderness when I preached on it a few, few months ago. It's not like it's nice, lush, green forest with babbling brooks and a little deer that drinks down takes a little sip of water and you can easily kill it with your slingshot and have dinner. It's not like that. It's a desert. But David does have some faithful friends, and we see that in verse 19 to 23. This guy named Ittai who was a brand new arrival, a new foreigner who had come in and struck a, 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 um, an alliance with David. And he's only been there for a couple of weeks, the scripture says. And he says, you know, I didn't come to Israel and form this alliance to hang out with Absalom. I'm sticking with you. And all the priests, they said, we're not going with Absalom. We're sticking with who we know God has chosen to be king. So they stay loyal to David. As a matter of fact, as David is leaving Jerusalem... The priest grabbed the ark. Remember the ark? We talked about that a few weeks ago where David wanted to bring it back and the first time he tried to bring it back they carried it wrong and poor Uzzah touched it to keep it from falling and he was dead and David was mad at God for a couple days and God said, look, if you just carry it right, everything would have been fine. So David carries it right, he brings it back into Jerusalem and he's singing and he's dancing and, and his robe falls off and his, his wife is really mad at him saying, you know, you, you, you've dishonored yourself in front of all of Israel. And David says, nah, I will become even more undignified than this before my Lord. That's the ark, right? And so the priests grab the ark. They're going to take it with them as David leaves Jerusalem. And David says, no, just wait. Take the ark of God back to the city. And here's what he says. If I find favor in the eyes of my God, he will bring me back. If he says, I have no delight in you, then here I am, he can do whatever he wants with me as he sees fit. And this is where I want to kind of focus on today. Because David has had a transition since he took the throne about this ark thing. Remember what God said, you can't can't build my dwelling place. I've been living in tents the whole time I've been traveling around with you guys. Your son will build it, but not you. And David has, even through all of his sinfulness and all of his stupidity and all of his lack of wisdom and all of his, you know, problems and dysfunctionality, through all of that, he comes to the point where he's fleeing his palace, his son has overthrown, he's dealing with this tremendous, terrible feeling of betrayal, and he says to the priest, I really appreciate it, take the ark back. <clears throat> Because I know that my relationship with Heavenly Dad is not hinged upon that religious symbol. The presence of God is with me regardless of the ark. And if He doesn't want to have pleasure in me, whatever He wants to do, I am His. And David is at the bottom here. He's low. He says, Look, if God wants me to go back to, if He doesn't want me to be king anymore, that's fine. I don't deserve the throne. Look at me, I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a terrible father. Why would God want me to be king? And then we see that his heart is broken and he's in love with brokenness and he's not in love with religion. And then the last part we will look at is David goes up the Mount of Olives and it's very interesting because his steps are the same steps that Jesus would trace when he was headed to his betrayal before his crucifixion. And the scripture says that David stops. He is going up the Mount of Olives. He traced these steps that Judas would follow later. He hears about Ahithophel, you know, defecting to Absalom. He's heard about that. He writes Psalm 41. And in some ways, we can see that Ahithophel's picture is sort of like Judas. David says, I want to stop. I'm going to pray that God makes Ahithophel's counsel to be stupid and foolish and that he gives Absalom bad counsel. But then what the scripture says David does is he stops and he worships God for at least a day. See, David's life was in danger and he knew he had to flee, yet he took time at the top of the mountain to worship. Now, in this situation, both Absalom and David are worshiping God, correct? assam has got his chariots and his men and all that kind of stuff and he's worshiping god david is fleeing the capital leaves the ark behind has some priests and some other people are sticking with him and he's worshiping god whose worship is genuine is it the murderer and adulterer and the terrible father or is it the murdering son who's also a betrayer and enacting mutiny who's the better worshiper guys do you know they're both pretty, pretty sorry guys, don't you think? And they're both worshiping God, at the, the same God, probably at the same time. And if you're God, you're thinking, okay, I got two murderers worshiping me. One's an adulterer. One's a thief. One's a terrible father. One's a terrible son. <clears throat> I mean, for real, who is the villain here? Both are guilty of similar sins. Both seem to worship God. What's the difference between these two men? I mean, how is it even possible? How can one be in such sin as David was and experiencing the consequences of the sin yet remain connected to the Heavenly Father? I mean, David constantly comes after God with brokenness and humility. And why is that? Because David is a man after God's own heart. And David isn't broken. Guys, and this is important. David is not broken because he knows how to manipulate God's favor. As a matter of fact, David says, look, if I've lost God's favor, so be it. He can do whatever he wants with me. I mean, it's supernatural, honestly, the way David responds to this exile and this betrayal from this son who, by the way, the earlier chapter we saw, Megan talked about last week, he had just forgiven his son for murdering his brother. It's supernatural the way David is in tune with God when he is in the wilderness Check out a couple of verses that he wrote, all right? He wrote a bunch of psalms during this time. This is probably his most prolific psalm writing period in his life. Did you know that? This time of exile. Let's look at a a portion of one. Here's what David is feeling. He says, My heart is severely pained within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me; fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. And I said, "Oh, that I would have wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest." Indeed, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. You get an idea of what he's going through. This is pretty bad. Look what he writes in Psalm three, uh, in this Psalm right here. In Psalm three, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Other people, he says, have determined that I don't have a relationship with you anymore. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He also wrote Psalm 41. He also wrote Psalm 61. He also wrote Psalm 62, and he also wrote Psalm 63, which starts like this: "O oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you as though I were in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, so that I could see your power in your sanctuary." that's psalm 63 so he writes these psalms and at this point what we see happening in king david is this amazing personal spiritual revival and here are some of the things that david learns about trial and consequences first of all these consequences are a sign of heavenly dad's love as a matter of fact his son solomon received the the legacy of this lesson when he wrote in Proverbs, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Solomon wrote that, David's son. It was a key lesson, I think, that David learned in his life that he passed on to Solomon. Another thing that David learns about these lessons and consequences, they are a key ingredient to brokenness and humility. He even wrote in Psalm 51, after he was confronted with Bathsheba and Uriah, he says, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones of pride you have broken can rejoice. So he understands that without consequences and without brokenness and without humility, he doesn't have this connection with God. And another thing he learned, consequences can relieve you of the burden of false spirituality And liturgy. Look, he could have kept the ark with him. But remember what else he wrote in Psalm 51? This is important. For you do not delight in sacrifice or burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and a contrite heart you will never hate. See, he could have kept the Ark of the Covenant, but he didn't want it. He wanted God instead. And it seems to me that as Christians, we often cling more to our liturgy, we cling more to our religion, we can cling more to our denomination, we can cling more to what we know about how we worship than we cling to God. But what we also seem to find out, the same thing as David did, when we go through consequences and trials, sometimes of our own doing, sometimes not, for me mostly they're of my own doing, It's then that my grip on church gets loose and my grip on God gets tight. Look at these passages. First one is 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. James 1. We, pre- we preached about James for a couple of months. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And when steadfastness has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It's during times of trial and difficulty when we cling to God and we beg for wisdom. You know, some people, I've ever heard, heard people talk about how impressed they are that when God said, I'll give you any gift you want, Solomon, David's son, you know, after David was dead and Solomon was king. What, do you, what gift you want? Oh, I want wisdom. Wow. Dadgummit, man. Solomon is so impressive, right? Because he asked for wisdom. What would you have asked for if David was your dad? My dad was an idiot. I want to be wise. I'm not not serious. The reason Solomon asked for wisdom because he probably saw what a life without wisdom looked like. It wasn't that Solomon was so godly and so smart and so brilliant. He was saying, I don't want to be like my dad. I love him, but the guy was messed up, yo. Make me smart. Because see... What begins to happen is we find that in our times of trial and in our times of consequences in those times, it's when we say, God, I care less about how good of a church person I look like. I care less about the organ or the guitar or the church service. And I care more about you. And I need wisdom from you. I need connection. I need to feel at this moment, Heavenly Dad, more connected than I ever have before. Watch this. This is what I wrote in 1999. The times when my faith manifests itself most genuinely is when I am enduring hardship. This was years before I knew that I would lose my daughter, by the way. Including that of my own doing. That's when I get the greatest sense of God's sovereign grip on my soul. I mean, if anybody could have undone God's favor, It was the murderous, adulterous, dysfunctional King David. Except for the murder or adultery, I might be a close second. Please mark that down. (laughs) It's in my weakness that I become most sure about my salvation. And my relationship with Heavenly Dad. It's when I love Him the most. You see... We know that God's love never changes for us, right? But be honest, yours changes for him. From moment to moment. Sometimes you really love him. Sometimes you're kind of, "Uh, oh, I love him." Sometimes it's, "Man, this hamburger is so good." You're right, we get easily distracted. And none of us like hardship. We don't like pain. But if, and only if you're a child of God, in a strange way, right now, whether you're going through it or not, you can kind of begin to, and see if you can kind of grasp this kind of what seems to be a counterintuitive concept that I'm going to leave you with, you can look forward to times of difficulty as a true good news, bad news kind of situation. Because what you begin to realize, it's that during those times of exile, those times of betrayal, those times of discouragement, those times where you are experiencing the overwhelming consequences of your own wickedness and sinfulness, it's those times when you experience the gift of brokenness and you really begin to know what it means to love a gracious, merciful, heavenly dad. Because your awareness of his presence is heightened. Your awareness of your dependency upon his grace is more real. And you find yourself in a situation where you say, how did I ever get here? But in a strange way, you start saying to yourself, I'm kind of glad I'm here. Make me hear joy and gladness that the spiritual bones you have broken can rejoice. Can you look forward to your next experience of consequence or trial or conflict right now as we speak? Can you in a kind of a twisted way kind of, I'm looking forward to the next time I'm broken because I'm really going to learn like David learned how to love God.